Chapter 18 of The Iron Horse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Del de Pignaroles. The Iron Horse by Robert Michael Ballantyne. Chapter 18 A Soiree Wildly Interrupted and Followed Up by Surprising Revelations. One afternoon, Captain Lee and Emma called on Mrs. Tipps, and found her engaged in an earnest conversation with Netta. The captain, who was always in a boiling-over condition, and never felt quite happy except when in the act of planning or carrying out some scheme for the increase of general happiness, soon discovered that Netta was discussing the details of a little treat which she meant to give to the boys and girls of a Sunday school, which she and her mother superintended. With all the penetration he did not however find out that the matter which called for the most consideration was the financial part of the scheme in other words how to accomplish the end desired with extremely limited means he solved the question for them however by asserting that he intended to give all the scholars all of all the sunday schools in the neighbourhood a treat and of course meant to include netta's school among the rest unless of course she possessed so much exclusive pride as to refuse to join him there was no resisting Captain Lee, as well might a redskin attempt to stop Niagara. When once he had made up his mind to go in for something, no mortar power could stop him. He might indeed be turned. Another object of interest, worthy of pursuit and judiciously put before him, might perhaps induce him to abandon a previous scheme. But once his steam was up, as John Merritt used to say, you could not get him to blow it off into the air. He was unlike the iron horse in that respect, although somewhat like him in the rigour of his action. Accordingly, the thing was fixed. Invitations were sent out to all the schools and to all who took an interest in them, and the place fixed on was a field at the back of Mrs. Tipp's villa. The day came, and with it the children in their best array. The weather was all that could be wished, a bright sun and a clear sky, so that the huge tent provided in case of rain was found to be only required to shade the provisions from the sun. Besides the children there were the teachers, many of them little more than children as to years, but with a happy earnestness of countenance and manner which told of another element in their breasts that evidently deepened and intensified their joy. There were several visitors and friends of Captain Lee and Mrs. Tipps. Emma was there, of course, the busiest of the busy in making arrangements for the feast which consisted chiefly of fruit, buns, and milk. Netta and she managed that department together. Of course, little Gertie was there and her sister Lou, from which we may conclude that Will Garvie was there in spirit, not only because that would have been natural, but because he had expressly told Lou the day before that he meant to be present in that attenuated condition. Bodily, poor fellow, he was on the footplate of the lightning, which is as much as to say that he was everywhere by turns and nowhere long. Mrs. Merritt was there too, and Baby, with Nanny Stocks as his guardian. Miss Stocks' chief employment during the evening appeared to be to forget herself in the excess of her delight and run Baby's head against all sorts of persons and things. Perhaps it was as well she did so, because it tended to repress his energy. She acted the part of regulator and safety valve to that small human engine, by controlling his actions and permitting him to good-naturedly 
let off as much of his superfluous steam on herself. Indeed, she was a species of strong buffer in this respect, receiving and neutralizing many a severe blow from his irrepressible feet and fists. Bob Merritt was also there with his bosom friend, Tom Tit Dorkin, whose sole occupation in life up to that time had been to put screws on nuts. This must have been nuts to him, as the Yankees have it, because, being a diligent little fellow, he managed to screw himself through life at the Clatterby Works to the tune of twelve shillings a week. Joseph Tipps, having got leave of absence for an evening, was also there, modest, amiable, active, and self-abnegating. So was Mrs. Natley, who, in consideration of her delicate health, was taken great care of and very much made of by Mrs. Tipps and her family, conspicuously by Mrs. Derby, who had become very fond of her her since the night she had nursed her. Indeed, there is little doubt that Mrs. Derby and the bottle of wine were the turning point of Mrs. Natley's illness, and that but for them poor Sam would have been a widower by that time. Mr. Abel, the director, was also there, bland and beaming, with a brother director who was anything but bland or beaming, being possessed of a grave, massive, strongly marked, and stern countenance, but nevertheless, owning a similar spirit and a heart which beat high in philanthropic desires and designs, the few who came in contact with him, except his intimate friends, would believe it. There were also present an elderly clergyman and a young curate, both good, earnest men, but each very different in many respects from the other. The elder clergyman had a genial, hearty countenance and manner, and he dressed very much like other gentlemen. The young curate might have breathed on his poker to judge from the stiffness of his back and appeared to be afraid of suffering from cold in the knees and chest to judge from the length of his surtout and the height of his plain buttonless vest when all were assembled on the green and the viand spread the elder clergyman gave out a hymn and the curate who had a capital voice led off but he was speedily drowned by the gush of song that rose from the children's lips it was a lively hymn and they evidently rejoiced to sing it. Then the elder clergyman made the children a short speech. It was amazingly brief, insomuch that it quite took the little ones by surprise. So short was it, indeed, and so much to the point, that we will venture to set it down here. Dear children, he said in a loud voice that silenced every chattering tongue, we have met here to enjoy ourselves. There is but one of your Sunday lessons which I will remind you of today. It is this, whether ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Before beginning, then, let us ask God's blessing. Thereupon he asked a blessing, which was also so brewed, that but for the all-prevailing name of Jesus, which, which he closed it, some of those who heard him would scarce have deemed it a prayer, at all. Yet this elderly clergyman was not always brief. He was not brief, for instance, in his private prayers for himself, his friends, and his flock. Brevity did not mark his proceedings when engaged in preparing for the Sabbath services. He was not brief when, in his study, he pleaded with some awakened but unbelieving soul to cast itself unreservedly on the finished work of our Saviour. He was a man who carried his tact and common sense into his religious duties, who hated formalism, regarding it as one of the great stumbling blocks in the progress of Christianity, 
and who endeavoured at all times to suit his words and actions to the circumstances of the occasion. The children regarded him with a degree of affection that was all but irrepressible, and which induced them, at his earnest request, to sit still for a considerable time while his young brother gave them a short address. He was almost emphatic on the word short, but the young curate did not appear to take the hint, or to understand the meaning of that word either in regard to discourses or surtouts. He asserted himself in his surtouts and vest, without of course having a shadow of reason for doing so, save that some other young curates asserted themselves in the same way, and he asserted himself then and there in a tone of voice called sermonizing, to which foolish young men are sometimes addicted, and which, by the way, being a false and therefore irreligious tone, is another great stumbling block in the way of Christianity. And, curiously enough, this young curate was really an earnest, though mistaken and intensely bigoted young man. We call him bigoted, not because he held his own opinions, but because he held by his little formalities with as much apparent fervor as he held by the grand doctrines of his religion, although for the latter he had the authority of the word, while for the former he had merely the authority of man. His discourse was a good one, and if delivered in a natural voice and at a suitable time might have made a good impression. As it was, it produced pity and regret in his elder brother, exasperation in Captain Lee, profound melancholy in Joseph Tipps, great admiration in Miss Stocks and the baby, and unutterable ennui in the children. Fortunately for the success of the day, in the middle of it, he took occasion to make some reference with allegorical intentions to the lower animals, and pointed to a pig which lay basking in the sunshine at no great distance, an unconcerned spectator of the scene. A rather fat-faced, obtuse boy was suddenly smitten with the belief that this was intended as a joke, and dutifully clapped his hands. The effect was electrical, an irresistible cheer and clapping of hands ensued. It was of no use to attempt to check it. The more this was tried, the more that did the children seem to think they were invited to a continuance of their ovation to the young curate, who finally retired among the hearty though unexpressed congratulations of the company. By good fortune, the arrival of several more friends divided attention from this incident, and immediately after, Captain Lee set the children to engage in various games, among which the favorite was Blind Man's Bluff. One of the new arrivals was Edwin Gerwood, who had come, he said, to introduce a gentleman, Dr. Noble, to Mrs. Tipps. Oh, the hypocrite, thought Mrs. Tipps. He has come to see Emma Lee, and he knows it. Of course he knew it, and he knew that Mrs. Tipps knew it, and he knew that Mrs. Tipps knew that he knew it. Yet neither he or Mrs. Tipps showed the slightest symptom of all that knowledge. The latter bowed to Dr. Noble, and was expressing her happiness in making his acquaintance when a rush of laughing children almost overturned her and hurled dr noble aside they were immediately separated in the crowd and strange to say edwin at once found himself standing beside emma lee who by some curious coincidence had just parted from netta so that they found themselves comparatively alone what they said to each other in these circumstances it does not become us to divulge while all parties were enjoying themselves to the full, including the young curate, 
whose discomfiture was softened by the kind attentions of Mrs. Tipps and her daughter, an incident occurred which filled them with surprise and consternation. Dr. Noble was standing at the time near the large tent looking at the game, and Nanny Stocks was not far from him choking the baby with alternate sweetmeats and kisses, to the hoarder of Joseph Tipps who fully expected to witness a case of croup or some such infantine disease in a few minutes, when suddenly a tall man with torn clothes, disheveled hair, and bloodshot eyes sprang forward and confronted Dr. Noble. Ha! he exclaimed with a wild laugh. Have I found you at last, my enemy? <laughs> Dr. Noble looked at him with much surprise, but did not reply. He appeared to be paralyzed. I have sought you, continued the man, trembling with ill-suppressed passion, over land and sea, and now I've found you. You've got the casket. You know you have. You took it from my wife the night she died. You shall give it up now, or you die. He spluttered rather than spoke the last words between his teeth as he made a spring at the doctor. Edwin Gerwood had seen the man approach, and at once to his amazement, recognizing the features of Thompson, his old opponent in the train, he ran towards him but was not near enough to prevent his first wild attack. Fortunately for Dr. Noble, this was thwarted by no less a personage than Joseph Tipps, who, seeing what was intended, sprang promptly forward and, seizing the man by the leg, adroitly threw him down. With a yell that sent a chill of horror to all the young hearts round, the madman, for such he plainly was, leapt up, but before he could renew his attack he was in the powerful grasp of his old enemy, Edwin Gerwood. A terrific struggle ensued, for both men, as we have said before, were unusually powerful, but on this occasion madness more than counterbalanced Edwin's superior strength. For some time they wrestled so fiercely that none of the other gentlemen could interfere with effect. They dashed down the large tent and went crashing through the debris of the thief, until at last Thompson made a sudden twist, freed himself from Edwin's grasp, leaving a shred of his coat in his hands, and, flying across the field, leapt at a single bound the wall that encompassed it. He was closely followed by Edwin and by a constable of a district, who happened to arrive upon the scene, but the fugitive left them far behind and was soon out of sight. This incident put an end to the evening's enjoyment, but as the greater part of it had already passed delightfully before Thompson came on the ground to mar the sport, the children returned home much pleased with themselves and everybody else, despite the concluding scene. Meanwhile, Mrs. Tipps invited her friends who had assembled there to take tea in Eden Villa, and here Dr. Noble was eagerly questioned as to his knowledge of his late assailant, but he either could not or would not throw light on the subject. Some of the guests left early and some late, but to Mrs. Tipps' surprise the doctor remained till the last of them had said good night. after which, to her still greater surprise, he drew his chair close to the table and, looking at her and Netta with much earnestness, said, "'Probably you are surprised, ladies, that I, a stranger, have remained so long tonight. The truth is, I had come here to have some conversation on private and very important manners, but finding you so lively, and, I must add, so pleasantly engaged, I deemed it expedient to defer my conversation until you should be more at leisure.' He paused as if to collect his thoughts, and the ladies glanced at each other uneasily, and in some surprise, but made no reply. In truth, remembering the scene they had just witnessed, they began to suspect that another style of madman had fought 
fit to pay them a visit. He resumed, however, with every appearance of sanity, How the madman who assaulted me this evening found me out I know not. I was not aware until this day that he had been tracking me, but, judging from what he hath said, and from what I know about him, I now see he must have been doing so for some years. Here is the explanation, and, let me add, it intimately concerns yourselves. Mrs. Tipps and Netta became more interested as Dr. Noble proceeded. You must know, he said, that when in India some years ago I made several coasting voyages with a certain sea captain as a surgeon of his ship, at periods when my health required recruiting. I received from that gentleman every attention and kindness that the heart of a good man could suggest. One of these voyages we had a native prince on board. He was voyaging, like myself, for the benefit of his health, but his case was a bad one. He grew rapidly worse, and before the end of the voyage he died. During his illness the captain nursed him as if he had been his own child, all the more tenderly that he thought him to be one of those unfortunate princes who, owing to political changes, had been ruined, and had lost all his wealth along with his station. It was quite touching, I assure you, madame, to listen to the earnest tones of that captain's voice as he read passages from the word of God to the dying prince, and sought to convince him that Jesus Christ, who became poor for our sakes, could bestow spiritual wealth that neither the world, nor life, nor death could take away. The prince spoke very little, but he listened most intently. Just before he died he sent a sailor lad, who attended on him, for the captain, and taking a small box from beneath his pillow, gave it to him, saying briefly, Here, take it, you have been my best friend, I shall need it no more. After he was dead, the box was opened, and found to contain a most superb set of diamonds, a necklace, brooch, earrings, bracelets, and a ring, besides a quantity of gold pieces, the whole being worth several thousands of pounds. As the prince had often said that all his kindred were dead, the captain had no conscientious scruples in retaining the gift. He locked it away in his cabin. When the voyage was finished, at Calcutta, the men were paid off. The captain then bethought him of placing his treasure in some place of security in the city. He went to his chest and took out the box. It was light. He opened it hastily. The contents were gone. Nothing was left to him of that splendid gift save the ring, which he had placed on his finger soon after receiving it, and had worn ever since. From some circumstances that recurred to our memories, we both suspected the young man who had been in attendance on the prince, but although we caused the most diligent search to be made, we failed to find him. My friend and I departed soon after. I was sent up to the hills, and never saw or heard of him again. Several years after that I happened to be residing in Calcutta, and was called one night to see the wife of an Englishman who was thought to be dying. I found her very ill, near her end. She seemed to be anxious to communicate something to me, but appeared to be afraid of her husband. I thought, on looking on him attentively, that I had seen him before, and said so. He seemed to be annoyed, and denied ever having met me. I treated the matter lightly, but took occasion to send him out for some physic, and, while he was away, encouraged the woman to unburden her mind. She was not slow to do so. Oh, sir, she said, I want to communicate a secret, but dared not while my husband was by. Long ago, before I knew him, my husband stole a box of diamonds from the Captain Tips. My husband! exclaimed the widow. You shall hear, said Dr. Noble. I often heard him tell the story, and boast of it, continued the sick woman, quietly, 
and I resolved to obtain possession of the box and have it returned, if possible, to the rightful owner. So I carried out my purpose, no matter how, and led him to suppose that the treasure had been stolen, but I have often fancied he did not believe me. This Captain Tipps was a friend of yours, sir. I know it, because my husband has told me. He remembers you, although you don't remember him. I wish you to return the box to Captain Tipps, sir, if he is yet alive. It lies. Here she drew me close to her, and whispered in my ear the exact spot under a tree where the jewels were hid. You'll be sure to remember the place? she asked anxiously. Remember what place? demanded her husband sternly as he returned with the medicine. No answer was given. The woman fell back on hearing his voice, but, although she lived for nearly an hour, never spoke again. The man turned on me and asked again what place she had been speaking of. I said that it was idle to repeat what might prove to be only the ravings of a dying woman. He seized a bludgeon and, raising it in a threatening manner, said, I know you, Dr. Noble. You shall tell me what I want to know, else you shall not quit this room alive. I know you too, Thompson, said I, drawing a small sword from a stick I always carried. If you proceed to violence, it remains to be seen who shall quit this room alive. I opened the door and walked quietly out, leaving him glaring like a tiger after me. Going to the place described, I found the diamonds, and from that day to this I have not ceased to try to discover my old friend but have not yet succeeded. Knowing that he might be dead, I have made inquiry of everyone possessing your name, Mrs. Tipps, in the hope of discovering his widow or children, and, although your name is an uncommon one, madame, you would be surprised if you knew how many I have ferreted out in the course of years. Unfortunately, my friend never mentioned his family or the place of his residence in England, so I have had no clue to guide me save one. I have even found two widows of the name of Tips besides yourself, and one of these said that her husband was a sailor captain, but her description of him was not that of my friend. The other said her husband had been a lawyer, so of course he could not be the man of whom I was in search. But, sir, said Mrs. Tips in some perplexity, if you are to depend on description, I fear that you will never attain your end, for everyone knows that descriptions given of the same person by different people never quite agree. That is true, madame, and the description given to me this evening of your late husband is a case in point, for, although it agrees in many things, in most things, there is some discrepancy. Did your husband never give you the slightest hint about a set of diamonds he had once lost? Never, but I can account for that by the fact that he never alluded to anything that had at any time given him pain or pleasure if he could avoid it. There is but the one clue, then, that I spoke of, namely the ring that belonged to the set of diamonds. Did your husband ever possess? The ring, exclaimed Mrs. Tipps and Netta in the same breath. Yes, he had a diamond ring. They stopped abruptly and looked at each other in distress, for they remembered that the ring had been lost. Pray, what sort of ring is it? Describe it to me, said Dr. Noble. Netta carefully described it, and, as she did so, the visitor's countenance brightened. That's it, that's it exactly, that must be it, for I remember it well, and it corresponds in all the respects with My dear ladies, let me see the ring without delay. Alas, sir, said Mrs. Tipps, sadly, the ring is lost. A look of blank dismay clouded poor Dr. Noble's visage as he heard these words, but he quickly questioned the ladies as to the loss, and became more hopeful on bearing the news. 
come,' he said at last, as he rose to take leave. "'Things don't look quite so bad as they did at first. "'From all I have heard, I am quite convinced that my friend's widow and daughter are before me. "'A sight of the ring would put the question beyond all doubt. "'We must therefore set to work at once and bend all our energies to the one great point of recovering the lost ring.'" End of chapter 18 Recording by Adele de Pinerolis.